Thank you for listening to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. Sign up to our Patreon to receive bonus content, live streams, and our weekly newsletter with money off books and museum visits as well, plus early access to all live show tickets. That's patreon.com slash we have ways. All set for your flight? Yep, I've got everything I need. Eye mask, neck pillow, T-Mobile, headphones. Wait, T-Mobile? You bet. Free in-flight Wi-Fi. 15% off all Hilton brands. I never go anywhere without T-Mobile. Same goes from a water bottle, chewing gum, nail clippers, okay, passport. Okay, I'm gonna leave you to it. Find out how you can experience travel better at T-Mobile.com slash travel. Qualifying plan required. Wi-Fi were available on select U.S. airlines. Deposit and Hilton Honors membership required for 15% discount terms and conditions apply. This episode is brought to you by ZipRecruiter. Patience is great and all, but sometimes you need to go after what you want especially when it comes to hiring for your business. Thankfully, ZipRecruiter makes that easy to do. They put the hustle in hiring with smart technology that finds top talent fast. See why four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter find a quality candidate within the first day. Try it free at ZipRecruiter.com Spotify. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. 10 years from today, Lisa Schneider will trade in her office job to become the leader of a pack of dogs. As the owner of her own dog rescue, that is. A second act made possible by the reskilling courses Lisa's taking now with AARP to help make sure her income lives as long as she does. And she can finally run with the big dogs. And the small dogs, who just think they're big dogs. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Learn more at aarp.org skills. Welcome to this edition of Between the Lines, the podcast that deciphers the handwriting, unfolds faded pages, and dips into the details of diaries, logbooks, and letters written during this same week, there or thereabouts, in 1943, some 80 years ago. Today is our final episode of Between the Lines. James and I will be back soon to reveal what happened to our cast of heroes and what happened in the final years of the war and beyond. Thank you so much for all the support you've shown for this series, and thank you to our excellent cast of voice actors who brought the faded diaries and worn logbooks and letters back to life for a modern-day audience, 80 years later. This week, a grand conference brings together multiple heads of state to sign the Quebec Agreement. The terms of this pact won't be revealed until 1954, But with the release of the film Oppenheimer recently, that framework is now well known. Using the codename Tube Alloys for nuclear weapons, Canada, Great Britain and the USA agreed to combine their research in pursuit of atomic weapons and to refrain from using them against any other nation without joint consent. Thank goodness. Elsewhere in the world this week, Japan and Thailand had just signed a peace treaty that would see four provinces of Japanese-occupied British Malaya become part of Thailand. Heinrich Himmler was named Reichsminister of the Interior, and Vice Admiral the Lord Mountbatten was named a Supreme Allied Commander of Southeast Asia. From here on in, he'll coordinate the war effort in that theatre by liaising closely with the American general, Douglas MacArthur. Or at least trying to. Again, no news from Major General Oscar Griswold this week. He has his hands full, but there's also a lot going on in the European theatre too. 
Let's start with Lieutenant Heinz Nocker, who from his diary entry this week appears to be quite literally in the wars again. We don't always remember, but minor injuries could also be sustained while flying an aeroplane, with bullets and flak ricocheting off a canopy, tracer fire going right through it, and through what little armour there was too. It's hardly surprising that many pilots and crew landed needing medical attention. If that was, they managed to land their aircraft in one piece. Here's Heinz. August 15th. The Americans apparently are again attacking the ball-bearing factories at Schweinfurt. They pass overhead at a great height, heading southeast. But we have a new assignment. Our aircraft are rigged under each wing with objects whose strange appearance causes them to be given the name of stovepipes. These are ejection tubes for a kind of 8-inch mortar shell, a propellant charge, an explosive charge and a time fuse. At this rate, we shall soon find ourselves carrying heavy artillery. The idea seems to be for our flights to form at a range of 2,500 feet behind the enemy's formations and then use the contraptions for firing explosive rockets at them. At 13.15 hours, the alert sounds. I trail the fortresses. Eventually I have an opportunity to attack in the Aachen area. Before I'm able to fire, my left wing is hit and the left softpipe shot away. I can hardly hold the unbalanced aircraft on an even keel, and inevitably the worst happens. I prepare for a belly landing. The engine starts. I have to make tighter turns in order to reach the landing field. Damn. I push the nose down and regain control. Houses flash past below in a nearby village. My airspeed indicator registers 200 miles per hour. I almost scrape the tops of small trees. 150 miles per hour. I must touch down. 120 miles per hour. My wingtips scrape the treetops. The indicator registers 100 miles per hour. I smash through two or three wooden fences. The splintering posts and crossbars fly in all directions. Dust and chunks of earth hurtle into the air. I hit the ground, bounce, bracing myself with a crash hard against the safety belt, with feet clamped on the rudder pedals. There's a dike ahead, and I crash. There's deathly silence. I unfasten my safety belt and drag myself out of the seat. My Gustav looks like an old bucket, which has been well kicked around and trampled underfoot. Blood oozes from my right sleeve. My aircraft is a total wreck. There's nothing left intact except the tailwheel. Time for a quick flit back to North Africa. Short and sharp as always, RSM Jack Ward of the 56th Heavy Regiment has only found time to make a couple of brief notes in his diary this week. Good to see he's still got a sense of humour though. August 15th. Right, here we are again. Back from practice camp. Talk about hurt, sand and dirt. Nice to get back to this luxury alternative. We're now armed with six-pounder anti-tank guns for local protection. I have to go on a ten-day course on Sunday, as we have two new guns for our RHQ. Nice surprise for Jerry if he comes around again. (laughs) Sicily's fallen, so we shouldn't be long. We're now making up time. Well, here I am at the 93rd Anti-Tank Regiment RA on a six-pounder course. We've now got two six-pounders for each battery at RHQ for defence against tanks. About time, too. 
Because we need some kind of weapon for tanks, especially after the last show. This place is uh, about 30 miles from Constantine. Course ends on Sunday. So we hope to go there for a bathe. Very hot here. We start with Gundrill at 6.30am and finish at 6pm at night with a short break in the afternoon. Sent my mail in today from the regiment. Had one each from Mum and Mick. Received my own packages but still get the feeling there are airmails en route. I shall be writing a note about airmail efficiency after this. Next, Lance Corporal Harry Wilson. Now then, Harry was attached to 3 Corps Signal over HQ Palestine Command, but he's recently been transferred to the 8th Indian Division. He's not too happy about the situation, but, for better or worse, his mind is also on other things at the moment. He's not feeling very well. Tuesday 17th, 8th Indian Division HQ is in large, high blocks in the suburbs of Damascus, a sun-baked, dusty neighbourhood, depressing to see. Both the cipher officer and the CSM were away, and I had to hang around. With me was another cipher operator called Goodbody, who had been lent out by 10 Indian Division. We were shown to the billet, and there I met Corporal Kennison. He took one look at me, and then fished the thermometer out of his kit bag, what it was doing in there, I daren't think. Took my temperature, 103.5. He very obligingly took me to the MO, an Indian captain, who immediately ordered an ambulance. It was an American field service ambulance driven by a gum-chewing yank who was considerate enough to help me with my kit. Twenty minutes later, I was sitting in a reception room at number two mobile medical unit. The orderly took one look at me. Sandfly fever, he said. We turned away five lorry loads of men with the same thing yesterday. Far too busy. A crowd of Indians were brought in. They'd blown themselves up with a bomb. Some of them died too. This floor here was running with blood. Just get yourself to bed, he said. It was a blessed relief to get between the cool, smooth sheets and go to sleep. Friday 20th, an IG cipher operator called Griffiths arrived from Cairo via Three Corps. Told me he was posted to 19 Infantry Brigade. He had an elder brother, also a cipher operator in 8th Indian Division, hence the posting. I was delighted to hear it. Companionship of sorts. We need to take a quick break. We'll be back with more from Between the Lines in just a moment. Life is full of what-ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard Fixed Indemnity Insurance Plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Back to Colonel Dr. Wilhelm Maus now, our medical officer in the Mediterranean. Having returned from Messina, checking in on the Feld Lazaret, the field hospitals, Maus must now deal with a change in pace and position for the German 40th Panzer Corps. He's starting to think about how the war is changing around him, and is in quite a reflective mood this week, once again pondering, what's it all for? August 15th. We have new orders. We will be relocated towards the rear, near Napoli, 
starting immediately with 19 Panzerdivision and the Hermann Göring Division, Casino, as the Fahlingschingjäger and the 29th Panzergenerundivision are to remain here, they must have enough medical units. I am still worried about the evacuation of the wounded Seminada. Two hospitals to take care of. Sicily seems to be progressing calmly and on schedule, and the number of wounded from the other side is moderate. Afternoon rest near Monaro, Calabria, north of Castrovillari, August 17th. The final night in Calabria was strange. I cannot sleep. Thoughts circle in my head. So that was the end of our Sicilian operation? We were unable to hold the island? Yes, we suffered a defeat. But was it really a defeat? Isn't it a success that we successfully got all of our weapons, equipments and vehicles back? And we brought all of our troops back healthy onto the Italian mainland? History will judge us, I am sure. I wonder what the judgment will be. A quick update from Captain Herbert Annesley Packer now, Bertie, who's still on the bridge of HMS Warspite. A couple of weeks ago, Bertie ran into Noel Coward and Lord Louis Mountbatten. Not so unusual, to be honest. Noel Coward visited Malta more than once, and he always visited the Allies' rest camps there. These were morale-boosting trips for the troops, often last-minute, rarely publicised until after the event. Coward made the trip on the back of his recent film release, The Patriotic in Which We Serve, the screenplay for which was inspired by Mountbatten's own service. Much loved now, it was also a well-watched film then too. Bertie made sure his men had the chance to watch it too. August 19th. At Whaley, when I left, I weighed 13 stone 8 pounds. I now weigh 13 stone. Last night, hearing Noel Coward was attending a programme of In Which We Serve at the Manor Theatre, I sent up Midshipman Lawson with a note asking him if he had a spare film on him as my ship's company had not seen it. Good man. I have it now. He was off early by air, so what was my surprise to get a message asking if he could come to lunch and spend the day with me? And so he did. Lunch with the Admiral, sleep in my cabin, bathe for two hours and then back here when I made him give my sailors a thirty-minute show. An impromptu affair. Very good with all his latest songs. A bit above the sailors in places, and he finished with a recitation of Clement's Dane's poem about the danger of wakening our dead heroes. But it was a most refreshing day for me. I played tennis in a dud four and played rather well. It was rum to handle a racket again, and this morning I'm not a bit stiff in the wrong places. Noel was very funny. He got the giggles in the bathing pool. Next day, the C&C, Cunningham, walked round the ship's company and addressed them. Simple, straight common sense, which went down very well with no heroics. Italy should be out by the end of the year, he said. And then... We must finish Germany. I will not say, he said, that victory is in sight, but I will say that victory is certain. Good show. Back to Britain now, to the musings of Veer Hodgson. Veer is based in Notting Hill in North London, and over the last few months she's made many entries in her diary about the Blitz, about air raid sirens in the middle of the night the unease and discomfort of taking cover while there's a raid on, and the devastation that occurred sometimes daily during the Blitz. However, as a young woman and a social worker, well-to-do comparatively, Veer also travelled a lot and often came into contact with people who weren't going through the same kind of experience. Remember, this isn't an era when social media or local television conveyed a national trend. 
life was a little bit more siloed in the 1940s. Listen carefully, and you'll hear just how many contrasts she puts on the page in this week's entry. August 15th. Generally speaking, the tide is still running in favour of the United Nations. At last! To open the paper and find constant good news. Well, we are just not accustomed to it. As I lay in bed the other night, I heard the deep purr of our bombers winging their way to Hamburg. This is a comfortable feeling. I turned lazily in bed and glowed at the thought of going back in my mind to those awful months when to hear that noise overhead was to know the Germans were going to pour death and destruction on us. It meant, in those days, a readjustment of the mind to the fact that this might be one's last night on earth, or that by the morning one might be homeless. One cannot help feeling it is good for the Germans to know what it feels like. Perhaps they won't put the machine in motion again so light-heartedly. It is wonderful to walk about at the Marble Arch. Very little traffic at any time, and less on Sunday. So we see each other plainly, everyone strolling in and out of the park. I wish I knew one quarter of the uniforms. Fascinating to see all these men who have come from every part of the world to help us. One evening saw an armada of bombers going forth on the night's work. They go so bravely forth, but one knows they will not all come back. It is a fine sight and gives us a feeling of strength. Let's close this week by hearing from Flight Lieutenant David Nairn Blythe and his mother Julia Blythe. You may have gathered their correspondence is a little strained at the moment. David, having picked up his wing, is now heading west for more specialised training and will shortly be putting that into practice. We'll start by hearing from his mother, Ma, Julia Blythe. August the 15th. Dear David, Dad asked me to say, don't worry if you can't send any letters at the moment. He completely understands. Don't worry about parcels either. I've explained it to Joan. I'm not sure she completely understands that this is quite normal and that by telling us you're going to be out of communication for a while, that doesn't necessarily mean a bad thing. It just means you're busy. The aircraft service has been very good to us both and I'm sure things will eventually settle down if you haven't been receiving meals regularly. We can easily wait until you come home to catch up on what you've been doing. I know it won't be long now and I also know that your leave is very precious to you. We had a visit from Faye and Johnny Blair on Monday night. Faye is spending a week of the holidays with Aunt Phoebe and I can now report that you can no longer call her your wee cousin as she is almost as tall as I am. Must just mention she and Johnny dropped some hints that they are thinking about the day. It's been a long time coming, but I am sure that they will make a good couple. They are very well suited to each other. Everyone here is fine, except for colds, contracted on account of our ever-varying Scottish climate, no doubt. It is no wonder to me that you have been in good health, as I imagine the air there is just as clear, but all the warmer. Gran and I are the exceptions to the rule, no colds for us yet. Must be the brisk walks round the garden in the mornings that keeps us fit. Hope you are keeping healthy. We're all looking out for those photographs, 
but would much rather see you in person. Love from all at home. Look after yourself. Ma. August 15th. Dear Ma, I've had a really good time in New York. I've now started on my journey out west. What I can tell you is that we are off to British Columbia. I'm surely appreciate that I'm not allowed to give you any more details than that. My train leaves in a few minutes. Makes a change from flying. Ma, I hope everything at home is going absolutely A1 and please assure Dad that I think of him as often as I think of you. It's been quite a conversation this week among the boys and we are all conscious that gaps in our letters and aircrafts must worry you. As I said, it's probably quite a good thing I'm out here, but it is hard. Well, the train is about to leave, bags ready and everyone is saying their goodbyes, so I must say mine too. Love to all, your loving son, David. Dear Ma, what a journey. It's by far the longest train journey I've ever taken in my life. It might interest you to know that the distance from my last station to this one is greater than the distance home, so that gives you and the rest of the family some idea of the size of this country. To sum it up, the Blythes are suddenly getting around. I haven't told you much about New York because there's not much to say. We arrived at night and, and Joan won't believe this, but I got to see Duke Ellington and Benny Goodwin on Broadway. Ellington was at the Hurricane Club and I was so determined to get his autograph that I walked right onto the bandstand. I stood and watched him playing for a little while. The floor was crowded with dancing couples. Ma, he shook my hand. Who knows, maybe some of that talent will pass on to your son too. I had a good mind not to wash that night, but I think Gran would have a few words to say about that. I didn't get quite as close to Benny Goodman. I also managed to see another show called The Follies, the chap called Jack Treacher, also a good player. Costumes were wonderful and the chorus girls were not just chorus girls. Being dancers yourselves, I'm sure you and Joan would have really appreciated it. Well Ma, you can tell I don't have much to say, even though I want to say a lot. We did get a chance to see the view from the top of the Empire State Building, but I have to say I didn't see much of the city, which was what I was supposed to be looking at. I was looking in your direction, and you all seemed a long way away. I must go now. Your loving son, David. Between the Lines is a We Have Ways production. Julia Mar Blythe is read by Ruth Sillers. David Blythe is read by Matthew Malthouse. Oscar Griswold is read by Michael Lyons. Chester Hansen is read by Lance Fuller. Via Hodgson is read by Rachel Holland. Heinz Knocker is read by Lucas Veschler. Bertie Packer is read by Paul Waggett. Jack Ward is read by Adam Jarrell. Harry Wilson is read by Joel Emery. Narration is by James Holland and Al Murray. Editing by John Gill and Joey McCarthy. Written and produced by Merrin Walters. The executive producer is Tony Pastor. <laughs>